Welcome to Hillside Baptist Chapel's weekly Bible study. Please join Dr. Steve Wood every week where we can all collectively grasp a better understanding of God through His Word. This podcast will be published every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Contact information is as follows. Dr. Steve Wood, Pastor, phone or message at 6438-6541, email at steverwood zero zero two at gmail dot com. Prayer requests can be sent directly to HBC Prayer List twenty twenty at gmail dot com. Good evening everyone. Welcome to our Wednesday evening podcast and our study of the book of Second Corinthians. Tonight we're in chapter five and uh, we'll be le- uh, reading from uh, verses eleven through fifteen. And it's going to take us um, at least a couple of nights to get through uh, this portion of Scripture. We'll read uh, all the verses here tonight, all four verses. But uh, we'll be going back uh, then on uh, successive Wednesday nights, at least one more Wednesday night on this particular study. I think it's really going to take two more Wednesday nights on this study. But we'll be looking at uh, the first few uh, verses tonight as we begin this study. And uh, the Apostle Paul's motive uh, is the uh, title that I've given to this particular uh, passage of Scripture because he's giving his motives for uh, doing what he's doing, for doing the things that he does. And uh, I think you'll uh, catch up on that as we uh, read these verses of Scripture. So uh, tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your conscience as well. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. For we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Let us pray. Father, again tonight, we're thankful for your word, for the opportunity to be able to read and study and understand. And Father, I pray your blessings on those that are listening to our podcast tonight. Thank you that we have so many listeners all around the world that are interested in the messages that you give from our church and I pray your blessings on them tonight and I pray that we might have a greater understanding of your word of your place for us in your kingdom and if there are those that don't know you that they might understand so very clearly so very plainly tonight what they need to do that they might have your salvation and we might be urged as your people to reach out to more and more people knowing the seriousness of what we're doing and of what you want in our world. And again, Father, we 
thank you for this time together. And I pray your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight, as we begin this study of the Apostle Paul's motives, let us notice again verse 11. We'll be taking each one of these verses, one verse at a time, and then breaking down these verses and looking at just parts of them as we conclude the understanding of what the Apostle Paul is trying to give us. Verse 11 says, Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. We're completely open before God, and I hope we're completely open to your conscience as well. Now let's notice, first of all, that phrase, the fear of the Lord. That speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be seated on the throne of judgments. Now notice I said more than one judgment. The throne of judgments. There's two judgments that are coming. And he will decide the destiny of all people. The apostle here was continuing with what he had ended with in the previous lesson, in the previous verses. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 he had said, For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. But there he was speaking of the judgment seat of Christ. Here he is speaking of all judgment, and especially the great white throne judgment at the end of time where those who are lost are going to appear. Notice he says we seek to persuade people. Why? Because we know that if they appear before that judgment, there's no hope. Today, while they're still living on this earth, there's hope for them to be rescued. The implication is that knowing how much the Lord is to be feared, what an occasion of fear and alarm it will be to stand at the judgment seat. How fearful, how awful will be the consequences of the trial on that day. The Lord Jesus will be an object of terror and alarm. Or it will be a circumstance inspiring terror and alarm to stand there in that day because He has all power in heaven and earth and has been appointed to execute judgment. All who appear there must give an exacting of the true account of all that they've done. And the wrath of God will be seen in the condemnation of those that are going to be judged guilty before the Lord. It's going to be a day of awful wailing and terror when all the living and all the dead are arraigned and put on trial with their eternal destiny depending upon the outcome of that trial. On that day multitudes of the guilty and the unrepentant shall be thrust down to an eternal hell. Who can describe the incredible terror of this scene? No one today knows how awful it's going to be. We can envision the horrors the masses of the guilty and those who are 
appearing before that judgment of doom. And they've been sealed to that judgment, fixed forever then in a world of unspeakable despair. The influence of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord on the mind of the apostle seems to have been twofold. First, an apprehension of it as a personal concern for those that he had preached to. He had a message for those that were lost. He had preached that message. Everywhere he went, he had tried to persuade men. He had tried to lead people to Christ. He had tried to show them their need to be saved. And these things had led him to a constant self-denial and toil for those that were in need. And secondly, he had a desire to save as many as he could from being overwhelmed in the wrath of that dreadful day. He knew it was coming. He knew what was going to happen. As I said before, it's going to be a day of awful wailing and terror for all that are going to appear before that judgment. Put on trial and eternal hell is going to be their destination. Who can describe that scene? Who can envision the horror of the masses of the guilty who will hear their doom? Depart from me, you who work iniquity, for I never knew you. Did you hear what it said? I never knew you, God says. The influence of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord on the mind of the apostle seems to be a constant self-denial and toil and a desire to save as many as he could. But the fear of the Lord often signifies the worship of the Lord as well as we read in the scriptures. Godly reverence which we owe to him. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 says, So the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in number. So as we see the fear of the Lord used there, it means a reverence. It doesn't mean to be afraid of Him. It doesn't mean to be terrified by Him. But it means to reverence Him and to worship Him. As we think of the English word fear, the Apostle Paul speaks of this not as a mindless dread, but as us giving Him His due reverence. His honor. And this has been described in the Old Testament as the beginning of wisdom in Job 28, 28 and Psalm 111, verse 10. How can a born-again child of God have anything but reverence or the fear of the Lord when he comprehends the great love that God has for him? Expressed in John 3, 16. And we realize that God loves us 
and that Jesus died for us. He will not be judged for his sins because Jesus has already taken care of that on Calvary. The only judgment he will face concerns the rewards for crowns that he will receive for his service rendered to the Lord and spoken about last week as we talked about these things the judgment seat of Christ. And he knows that Jesus does everything for our good and would never hurt us. And then notice the phrase we, uh, we seek to persuade men. That is, we attempt or endeavor to persuade the individual who is lost to repent and to believe the gospel so that instead of being objects of divine wrath, they may live and die happy in his favor, in his fellowship. We attempt to persuade them to flee from the wrath to come, to be prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, and to be fit to enter into heaven. Our fitness to enter into heaven is not because of our works, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Notice the uniqueness of the statement. He does not say we drive people or we endeavor to induce them by all means of persuasion and arguments to flee from the wrath to come. The future judgment and the scene of the future anguish are not proper topics of friendly conversation since it tends to drive people away. To proclaim merely a hellfire and damnation as an appeal for individuals to be saved to cause them to fear, it's not the way in which the Apostle Paul and even our Savior preached the gospel, gave that good news. The knowledge that there would be a judgment and that the wicked would be sent to hell was a powerful motive for the Apostle Paul to endeavor to persuade people to escape from the wrath that was coming. It was a motive for the Savior as he lived on this earth to weep over Jerusalem and to grieve over its folly and its doom. Luke 19 verse 41 says, As he approached, he saw the city. He wept over it. The fire and brimstone preaching of the past has been replaced today by the feel-good preaching. That creates another set of problems, doesn't it? The effect that the Christian witness should endeavor to produce is given in tenderness, deep feeling, and love. And it should be stimulated by prayer and the language of tender persuasion to lead people to weep over their sins, their wrongs, rather than to denounce them, rather than to condemn them, let God do the condemning. But we're to pray to God to have mercy on them rather than to use the language of severity in condemning their actions and their sins. Since we know what God requires of man, 
because he has revealed it to us in his word. We persuade men to become Christians because they must all stand before the seat of judgment. And if they do not receive the grace of the gospel, they must appear before the great white throne judgment and give their account with sorrow and not with joy. In short, a man who is not saved from his sins in this life will be separated from God and the glory of the power of the world to come. This is a powerful motive for us as His people to persuade people who don't know Him to accept, accept the salvation provided for them by Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7 says. The meaning of this that God sees that we are sincere and upright in our aim and purpose. He is acquainted with our hearts. All of our motives are known to Him. And He sees that it is our aim to promote His glory and to see lost sinners saved by His grace. This is probably said to counteract the charges which may have been being brought by those that were in Corinth who didn't like the Apostle Paul. There were those that were trying to condemn him and criticize his ministry, nullify his effect, and those in Corinth knew the Apostle Paul. He wasn't influenced by improper motives. To counter this, the Apostle Paul says here that God knew that he was endeavoring to reach the lost and that he was motivated by a sincere desire to rescue them from the impending terror of that day of judgment. We have no need to persuade the Lord of our integrity for he knows all things. I'll never cease to be astonished that God knows everything about me, yet He loves me anyway. Now notice those next words. And I hope we're completely open to your conscience as well. To paraphrase what the Apostle Paul was saying, let me say it like this. I trust also that you are convinced of our integrity and uprightness of purpose. A similar sentiment is expressed in different words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 where the Apostle Paul says, Instead we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. It's an appeal that he makes to them and the expression of an earnest and confident assurance that they knew and felt that his goal was upright and his purpose was sincere. Now notice verse 12, if you will. It says here, We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have 
a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the, in the heart. Now notice that first phrase. We are commending ourselves to you again. Was the Apostle Paul bragging? Was he just trying to glorify himself before the Corinthians? Not at all. Though Paul was telling about him glorying in his weakness and his trials and his struggles, he is not doing it to brag about himself before the Corinthian Christians. He did not commend, praise or brag about himself for he, persuade, he was persuaded that he had already been made manifest clearly perceived by their eye of understanding to their conscience. He said, I'm already assured of your confidence, therefore I'm not commending myself in order to recommend myself to you. He had already addressed the charges made against him by the Judaizers that he was bragging. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, we read this again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. It is clear that your Christ letter, produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. And then, in the verse coming just prior to this, he had said, And I also trust that we will know in your conscience it is clear that he believed that the Corinthians knew him well enough so that he did not need to defend himself. But it's equally clear that there was a movement in the assembly to discredit him and his ministry. We've talked about that almost from the beginning of reading his letters, don't we? And then he said, but we give you an opportunity to be proud of us. Paul had spoken of his weaknesses, his trials, his struggles, because he wanted to give the Corinthian Christians the opportunity to be proud of him and to give them a starting point for something to boast of on our behalf, as he said. There is, however, some irony in the Apostle Paul's words because the Corinthians were not interested in uh, glorying in Paul or in seeing anything good in any of his trials. They thought that the trials made Paul less of an apostle and less of a man of God, not more of an apostle and man of God. And so they were accusing him of self-praise. Paul knew this well. But he is happy to give them the opportunity to boast on our behalf, as he said. None of the less he hoped to be 
more of what they needed him to be. And that they would defend him from his accusers, those that were bringing those accusations, the scandals, the rebukes. And to give him the honor that was due for his faithful and sincere labors in planting and sustaining the Corinthian church. He had already said in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that the teachers and the, uh, the things taught in their assembly ought to have some grounds for boasting of each other, as he said. The Corinthians were being robbed of this by the lies of the opponents who thought only about outward appearance. This is why he is expressing to them the aim and glory of his ministry. Nothing could be more gentle and tolerant than such a mode of starting here stating his objectives. He certainly didn't hold back when it came to bragging about the Corinthians. Notice he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 2 and 3, For I know your eagerness, and I brag about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I sent the brothers, so I boasting about you in that matter would not prove empty, and so you would be prepared just as I have said. Also, the Apostle Paul bragged about them in chapters 4 and 8 and 12. We don't have time tonight to go to those and, and read those, but he was proud of the Corinthians. And it, he wanted others to know about what they were doing and how they had lived for the Lord. Now notice the next phrase. That you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. One problem with the Corinthians is that they lacked those who had an attractive appearance and some of them didn't have a lovely heart. They preferred those who had no true inward cause for glorying, though they have reason to glory in outward appearance and are in respect to their riches, their personality, their wisdom or the like. Paul wanted to give them something to use in response to these false claims that had been made by the Judaizers and others that were his opponents there in Corinth because his glory was not an appearance. By telling the Corinthians how God is working through his struggles and his trials, he was giving them something to say in his defense. The object of their boasting was in the holiness, the zeal, the love, and so forth, which might be seen in a man's presence, not what existed in other areas.
Paul is contrasting those who are destitute of all that were boasting, that were hypocrites, and who put their confidence in their outward appearance. Those things that people could see. This included their relationships, their connections, their influences, even their ancestors, and particularly their external relationships with what they claim to be their union with Christ. And we contrast that with those who possess the only proper grounds for boasting, that which is internal and noble. In man, that which God looks upon, that which God is able to see as the seed of our faith, the heart of the born-again believer, not the face, not the physique, the grounds of their boasting, whatever they were, were superficial and external. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7. It's not deep and sincere, but those who would rightly judge Paul must look into his very heart and not in his face. What do we glory in today? Are we among those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than the heart? Remember what the Lord said to Samuel. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible. But the Lord sees the heart. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. We're so easily impressed by a person's image. We often don't see or don't even care about the substance of the individual. It isn't that which appears. That's utterly unimportant. But compared to the heart, that is most important. We're going to stop there tonight and we'll begin with verse 13 next week. But I hope tonight as you're able to look at the Apostle Paul's heart and you're able to see his motive for preaching what he did and the actions that he took, that we'll be able to have that same kind of attitude and those same kind of actions in our lives. And people will be able to look at on our hearts not on our face and our physique, our outward appearance, but they'll be able to see that we're truly following the Lord and doing His work and His will in our hearts and our lives. Our Father, as we come to the end of this study, if there are decisions that are needed by those that are listening, Especially if we, as we've talked about the great white throne judgment and there's going to be those that are going to appear there because they've never trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That people would turn from their sins and they would turn to you for the salvation that they need. Help us as your people that we'll see the example of the Apostle Paul and we'll follow in your steps as he did. 
I pray your blessings on those that are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay tuned for a short weekly editorial with Face to Face with Dr. Fred. Good evening. Last Saturday was 9-11. I was in a Zoom discussion group called Friends of Peter, about two to three hundred, all part of Peter's friends. Our subject being 9-11 was, where were you and how did you feel on that fatal day of 9-11? The emotions rang high. We could tell that the 9-11 was still remembered by everyone. Then, later on, uh, in my literary group, which meets on Fridays, we have a member, Ron Parker, a fireman from New York City, whose fire station was the very first responder to the Twin Towers 911. Of the fire station buddies, the lone survivor was my friend, Ron Parker. And he still remains alone. But with God's help, he wrote the shocking event of 9-11 in his published book, Chief Pawns and Warrior. I will repeat it again, Chief Pawns, P-A-W-N-S, and Warrior. Even today, as he speaks all over the United States and other countries, Ron still feels the effect of 9-1-1 in his life. No doubt you remember 9-1-1. In my lifetime, four events remain in my memory. These events are the Second World War. Yes, I am that old. I can remember that. The assassination of President Kennedy the 9-11 World Trade Centers, of course, we just talked about, and now COVID-19. My producer, Frank Four, who is younger than I, said, walking on the moon. Oh, perhaps you too can remember a different event. Yes, walking on the moon was very important. That still remains strong in your memory, I bet. It would take time should each one of us listening to this podcast tell the events still deep in your memory. We now are in 19 countries. How interesting it would be and emotional too. After I thought of these events in my life, I opened a large book in Marlene's library, Chronicle of the 20th Century. I spent two hours going over all events 
recorded in this book. From 1934, my birth, until 1991, the last page of the book, I thought and thought, events, events, events. It reminded me of my school days when we would have to stand before the class and give current events. But nothing emotional of the five events that I previously event, uh, mentioned turned out in all that two hours of reading. I was surprised as I, as I spoke to a friend last Friday who had just returned from Singapore on a big business trip. Dr. Fred, he told me, you think people here are concerned about COVID? In Singapore, they are not only concerned, they are fearful. With so much fear there and the change so great, I turned down the most lucrative job offer I have ever received in my life. After hearing him, let me ask you a question. What will be the next worldwide event that will be stored in your memory? As I was preparing this podcast, Marlene was preparing lunch. So I asked her that question to her. Marlene turned to me and said, the return of Christ. She may be right. Whether it will be the next worldwide event, no one knows. But we Christians know that Christ will return. How do we know? The Word of God tells us, and there are many scriptures, you know, going starting in Matthew, in Mark, Luke, and in Revelation. And you know, Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. All four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Revelation, reads, He comes with clouds. The next worldwide event, no one knows. But maybe we should be looking at the clouds of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for His coming? Are you ready for His coming? Are you Contact information is as follows. Dr. Steve Wood, Pastor, phone or message at 6438-6541, email at steverwood002 at gmail.com. Prayer requests can be sent directly to hbcprayerlist2020 at gmail.com. Thank you and God bless.